Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Forrest Podcast. It is, of course, your host, Mike Lover. Before we kick it off into this current events episode, let's talk about some of our sponsors. Um, I just recently was in Maine. I'm a big seafood junkie. Was visiting um, the great folks at Sig Sawyer in New Hampshire and got the opportunity to hit the coastline to eat some of my favorite seafood. Uh, on seafood, Wild Alaskan Company has been a source for seafood shipped to my door. When you defrost seafood, the countdown for freshness begins, and who knows how long that fresh grocery store fish has been sitting out for. Wild Alaskan Company, for all you um, mainlanders who live inland, uh, Wild Alaskan Company freezes their fish right after it's caught, and it's perfectly handled and delicious when ready to cook. Um, I'm a big fan of um, Wild Alaskan Company because they're delivering the food, which is seafood, straight after it's caught, and each shipment contains premium cuts of individually wrapped portions of seafood. Choose from salmon, cod, halibut, and more, or a combination of them, and every month there are different specials to explore. Wild Alaskan Company seafood is how nature was intended to be. Always wild, never farmed or modified, and contains no antibiotics. You get to just pause or cancel your membership anytime, and they offer 100% satisfaction guaranteed. Right now, you can get $15 off your first box of premium seafood when you visit wildalaskancompany.com slash mikeforce. That's A-L-A-S-K-A-N dot com slash mikeforce for $15 off your first box. Wildalaskan.com slash mikeforce. All right, guys, let's talk about my next sponsor. Um, man. <laughs> If you're not using a VPN, you're wrong. Um, one of my favorite VPNs that I use constantly is ExpressVPN because your internet provider is watching everything you do. It's why you go on your internet and even in incognito mode, is the private mode, you're being watched. That's why all that is tethered in cookies to everything else you're doing. And those, those things that you Googled about are popping up in your YouTube feeds and your Twitter feeds and everything else. So. I use ExpressVPN for security. It's an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. Also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize that the VPN's on because it runs in the background. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So today, protect your online activity with a VPN rated number one by CNET Visit expressvpn.com slash mikeforce. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash mikeforce. If you go there, you could get an extra three months for free on a one-year package. Again, that's expressvpn.com slash mikeforce. Okay, guys, let's kick off the podcast. So, man, a lot of things to catch up with. Um, what I like about these podcasts is I could talk about current events that are happening in Philcraft's life and my personal life. And I've selfishly hijacked Mike Forrest to kind of be my own thing. Periodically, I will interview people. But what I've realized on the road is I like catching you up um, with what's going on in my life. And I, yeah, sure, I like timeless podcasts that are kind of lasting forever. But I like the opportunity to keep you guys in the fold of all the things outside of the company and its advertisement and its marketing that you could find out um, all those details from me, from the person who runs Fieldcraft Survival. So I got back from Overland Expo. Um, if you've never been to Overland Expo, you need to go. 
So Overland Expo is, uh, in this case, it's Overland Expo West, is an expo that brings the overlanding community together. Um, until I, I mean, a lot of people make fun of the overland industry. Let's be honest. It's like you're getting in a vehicle, going from one destination to another, and it's not that complicated. The cool thing about the overland community is it's a bunch of good people that have travel, uh, adventure, um, and off-roading in mind. I mean, I don't overland to see people or overland uh, to increase the number of people that I see. I overland to get off grid. And so what I realized early on in kind of getting more invested in overlanding is that um, overlanding for me is my opportunity to rehearse all the things that I love about preparedness. So when I was in special operations, um, for example, Afghanistan, we used to do long range movements and Land Rovers and Toyota Hiluxes, all these fancy vehicles. And when we did that, we really didn't know what we were doing except just, I mean, often making mistakes because there wasn't a lot of information out there. I don't want to say I'm taking a sip of coffee. Of course, Black Rifle coffee. Big shout out to the guys at Black Rifle. So when we were doing these things, there wasn't kind of an industry of people coming together and kind of innovating the space and figuring things out and talking about it. Now, the, one of my favorite formats for education for overlanding is Expedition Portal. Big shout out to Brian, to Scott Brady of Overland Journal and Expedition Portal, because a lot of the things that I uh, researched was through Expedition Portal, which is a great forum, expeditionportal.com, and started realizing there's a whole community of people like this. So when I go to Overland Expo and we have a booth, it's the Phil Krause Survival Booth, preparedness is the opportunity to, it's like the Trojan horse, like, like a mobility rig is a Trojan horse of preparedness. Because if you go off grid, you're away from infrastructure, you need to be um, cognizant of the equipment that you carry because it might be the equipment that's going to save your life. Because you, again, you don't have the infrastructure. So my position with uh, owning a preparedness company is kind of infiltrating the education piece and then offer a product offering of things that could make you better prepared. Like we have the mobility bag, the loadout bags, the visor panels, all in an attempt to make preparedness and first aid, survival, contingencies just a little bit more convenient, accessible, and fun. Uh, what I love about the Overland community is it's kind of low stress. You get a shot show and it's full of egos, uh, full of everybody there's a tactical instructor. Everybody there is, is, is uh, sizing you up. And I don't like that. I like the opportunity to go somewhere, break bread, build rapport, uh, and develop relationships. And that was my experience with my team at Overland Expo this year. Now, they're thinking about bringing it back for the May time frame. Um, instead of making it a September timeframe. So either way, we'll be at Overland Expo every single opportunity we get. Make sure you follow at Philcraft Mobility because that's where we put a lot of our overlanding content. Um, and yeah, it, try to get uh, involved. Um, somebody asked me like, hey, Mike, what, how do I get involved with, um, or how do I start the process of getting involved with this idea of mobility? Uh, let me explain a little bit about what mobility is in our current form factor, because it's different than a lot of people's understanding of 
what this is. So when we talk about mobility, what we mean is you have a rig and you have a vehicle that you use maybe as a daily driver and you use that same rig to go camping, to go overlanding or travel, um, to, to get away. So my thinking is if you build that rig out for adventure, you are absolutely building that same rig out for the worst case scenario. Because often the same things principally that you apply in that rig are going to help you in bugging out, in bugging in, in hopping curves in the middle of a wildfire sweeping through a highway, which we showed videos on Philcraft Mobility about this. Building out in your capacity, your capability. Um, I like to think of it this way. like Imagine a vehicle in all of its storage spaces, the capacity, the capability is all the things that you put in that capacity, in that space, and then your ability to technically execute those tasks. So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a Subaru. Uh, Subaru is a great car. Uh, most of them are all-wheel drive, perfect in, in uh, inclement weather. Uh, you'll see them in Maine, in Colorado, in Idaho, because people want to drive cars, but they want to have the ability to drive in snow and all kinds of inclement weather. So when I look at the trunk of a Subaru, what should be in it? Well, it shouldn't be empty because you have no capability. But if you have a first aid bag, if you have recovery equipment, if you have maintenance equipment, if you have a tire repair kit, then when something goes wrong, potentially in that austere environment, that inclement weather, you have the ability to fix it. You don't have to wait on AAA. You don't have to wait on roadside service, you can handle it yourself, especially in a disaster. So a lot of people die in vehicle accidents. And actually this week, I got two separate um, messages. One from one of the guys that runs Big Commerce, who was just here with us in Overland Expo. Uh, by the way, Big Commerce, if you're, um, and this, they don't pay me to do any of this stuff. I jumped from Shopify after they got rid of us because of political stuff and jumped over to big commerce and they've been great. So if you're a high risk business, apparently training civilians is high risk. Um, then you need to go to big commerce. So anyways, he came and visited us, got one of our kits, was heading home, catastrophic uh, accident. A vehicle rolls, ejects three people. I don't even know how that happens. Like the fact that three people weren't wearing their seatbelts, um, were ejected. I don't know the status of the, the people that were in it, but he was able to treat some of the, the injuries. I had another message from a guy who was driving and witnessed a airplane crash, an airplane crash, winded up treating the guy, um, potentially saving his life or treating his wounds and saving his life and had pictures and a story to tell that, Hey man, your medical kit and the integration of that in my rig, never thought about it before, but I did it and it saved some lives. That's so impactful. It's not just about your trunk space. It's about the actual compartment where you're seated. When I tell people about, especially injuries to yourself in, in vehicles, is it's not going to be the ideal circumstance. You're going to be crunched up in a car on top of the steering wheel, looking for a tourniquet to save your life. And when you need that tourniquet, you need it in arm's reach. 
that's why we have a visor panel that allows you to Velcro attach medical and survival gear, including a tourniquet, to access that. Uh, that's why we sell our, our mobility bag, a, a panel pack that goes in the back of a seat. So again, you could reach back behind your seat, grab all your life-saving gear, and save your life or the li- lives of your loved ones, or as a responsible citizen, which we advocate for, the lives of people you come across. So mobility can be fun. It's what we do uh, at Philcraft Mobility. And I encourage you guys to look into it because it's, it's super positive. And building out your capability, uh, it, it can be a family affair. And I love that aspect of it. All right, let's, let's, um, let me get some of this coffee and let's uh, uh, move on. Some um, key players in the Overland space, you know, the people that I follow, it's uh, uh, Overland Journal with Scott Brady. That's, that's one of the mainstays. I also follow a family on um, social media and on uh, YouTube called Epic Family Road Trip. They're one of my favorite families to follow because I like the family aspect of overlanding. Got the two sons who do a lot of motorcycle stuff. Uh, but Epic Family Road Trip on Instagram and um, their YouTube channel is excellent. Um, they go through equipment. They talk about different things. And it's somebody that I pay attention to to learn from because I'm not an expert at it. I've done it all over the world. But there's, that, that doesn't mean that I, I can't learn from it, especially when it comes to loading out your family and friends. So let, let's talk about equipment before we move on because I know some people are interested in this uh, topic. When I look at specific rig builds, like we have a HZJ 75 series Land Cruiser. The story on that Land Cruiser that we highlighted at our booth and at Casey Highlights booth at Overland Expo was that you could take a, a foreign vehicle. Um, in this case, it's a turbo diesel that has, a, it has an engine called a 1HZ or 1HZ. And that engine uh, is a great engine for high torque, low RPM bandwidth, which makes it easier to navigate off-road and is really capable as a on-road and off-road vehicle because of its reliability. Toyota is known for that. So the first thing I look at is load capacity, vehicle gross weight capacity, gross vehicle weight capacity. So what I mean is most people don't realize this, but you have a off-road SUV. Let's say it's a 4Runner or a Tacoma. Well, if you have a Tacoma and you put a bumper set on it with the weight of your passengers, you're probably already overweight. The average is from 1,200 to 1,500 pounds, including the passengers of the vehicle. So most of these vehicles by design, which has to do with suspension components, axle configuration, drivetrain configuration, um, as well as even the, you know, the details like the frame are designed for a specific weight. And if you exceed that, you start to degrade your capabilities, including safety. Uh, I have a 4Runner that I still have, 2016, that's got 160, 70,000 miles on it that I have built out completely, but it's super dangerous. And the reason it is is because it's overloaded. It's got steel bumpers front and rear. It's got skid plates still all the way down it. It's got the roof rack. It's got the internal components. And then when you look at the weight, it's way over the gross vehicle weight recommendation, which I believe for a 4Runner is 1,400-ish pounds. So 
when you're overweight, you compromise your ability to go off-road. The brakes wear completely different. The suspension is taxed and labored. And then before you know it, you're in a dangerous situation. So that's why I love foreign or Japanese versions or South African versions, because those are the versions that I use overseas and they have more low capacity. I believe, I might be making this up, my 75 series, I believe has 1900 pounds of gross vehicle weight, which is a lot different and a lot better than my current setup in my 4Runner or other vehicles. If you were to ask me, hey, Mike, what's the recommendation of a vehicle that I should get? I would recommend getting a uh, full size, a Dodge 2500, 3500, depending on how many people you have. Now, if it's just you and you're a lone wolf and you want to like live that overland life, get a Tacoma, get a 4Runner. Um, but if you are looking at building a bug out rig, get a full size truck. They're very simple. No matter how you load them down, you're still going to have low capacity. I think it's 3,500 to 4,000 pounds, depending on the drivetrain and options um, and quarter ton and you know, all, all the different uh, configurations. But the bottom line is you can load it with as much as you want. Now, if you break down, a little, down that uh, a little further, a lot of people can afford these very expensive kind of rigs. So what can you do with your rig? Well, you can look at the tires. Um, a lot of I have a Vanagon, a 1991 Volkswagen Westphalia Vanagon, um, the off-road pop camper version. It's almost mint. It's like really good condition. I got a lift kit from uh, Go Westy. I have um, headers and exhaust and just a couple things, but I have all-terrain tires and Go Westy wheels. That vehicle, even though it's two-wheel drive, because of its uh, weight, is easily off-roadable um, in any condition, and you don't need that. In fact, you don't need a four-wheel drive synchro, like an expensive Vanagon. Get a two-wheel drive, get a Peliquin a limited slip differential, and you're fine over most things. Look, I don't drive overland rigs and rock crawl them. I'm actually not into that at all. Uh, I grew up in North Carolina. I still have my first Jeep that I bought brand new when, in 1999, and that Jeep, um, I, I've Jeeped all over the Appalachian trails of North Carolina specifically. And it got me over some of the hardest trail systems. Uh, there's a, there's a trail system called Marie. I did that trail system fine with that vehicle. Uh, and most of the stuff that you drive across America, you don't need that. The next thing that I would look at besides kitting out the interior with all the components, even from Philcraft survival, and that's a, that's a plug for my company, but there's also a lot of justification to that with first aid survival the list goes on, um, I would look at looking at your rig and investing in a good suspension system. Now, I was torn between this at first, but what I realized over time is that uh, bad suspension or stock suspension off-road can completely start to destroy components. So I would look at um, companies like Icon, like... um, Old Man Emu. I mean, I run Old Man Emu on most of my rigs because they're older rigs because they're just good at off-road suspension, including shocks, springs, uh, struts, the list goes on. Lower control arms, upper control arms. And when you do that, you create uh, potentially ground clearance, right? Because there's the clearance off the ground, which your wheel will get the axle off the ground, creating more clearance. And then you get articulation or distance between the top of the, the wheel and the wheel well. You need both of those in balance. 
because you want articulation, you want flex to be able to get over obstacles that are uneven, but you also want traction and you also want uh, ground clearance. So a good balance is, is find something, um, get a low center of gravity. You don't need to be, you know, 10 inches above your wheel. I think most of my rigs have 2.5 to 3 inch lifts. Get an oversized, larger tire that has more, tra- more of a traction patch, which means it's wider. Uh, and, and you might need some offset. You might, you need, might need some spacers from um, the rotor out to push the wheel out beyond, even a little bit beyond the wheel well, and you'll be good. Again, all within the confines of your budget. I saw guys at Overland Expo with like cars, the two-wheel drive cars, and they had done a little bit of the build-out. They had the rack system, the tires, the all-terrain tires, and that makes a big difference. So don't, don't get bummed out if you don't have the budget. I mean, you're talking to somebody who grew up poor and you know, had the Honda Civics and everything else. Uh, it just takes time to build that stuff out. Um, some old recommendations for old vehicles to get into that are pretty on budget, a Jeep TJ. I have a 99 to, I believe it's 06, mine's a 99, Jeep TJ, which is the model. Uh, Wrangler, uh, which is a very off-road capable vehicle, not expensive. Toyota 4Runners and Land Cruisers, older versions of them, including FCJ or FJ80s, which I believe is like 91, 92 for the um, FJ80 and FCG or FZJ, sorry. Uh, Nomenclature for the 80 is 93 to like 98. Uh, I think 97 was the last year they did, or to 98. Um, yeah, there's plenty of options out there. Um, I got asked a question about getting, getting set up for preparedness as a woman and to, to talk about some considerations for the differences between women and men and getting set up. So I'm going to make this conversation shaped around women, specifically women who are uh, looking to get better prepared. So look, there is a significant difference between men and women. Most of it has to do with biology um, and science, right? Most of it has to do with uh, the size of a man versus the size of a woman. When I think about preparedness, let me give you an example. A 120-pound woman, a 120-pound woman with all of the skill sets in the world in martial arts or combatives or MMA would not stand a chance against a 225-pound and above male. You know, I weigh about that much, um, being 6'1", 230, 240. I don't care what that 120-pound woman knows. Even if she's taught uh, these techniques on groin strikes, head butts, and all these things, if the person who was the male who outweighed them times two was to put their hands on them, they would destroy them. And that's something that you have to take in consideration when trying to understand how this works for preparedness. Because when I look at educating women, one, I want to identify significant differences in both males and females. Even the fact that females are obviously more often the victims of violence and sexual crimes by overpowering uh, men. So if you're more likely to be exploited because you are a, a small woman and you're going about your day, bad people look for weaknesses and exploitation. That could be a pattern of life. That could be a demeanor or a posture. That could be behavior that is indicative of weakness. So a lot of the things that we do 
around preparedness have to do with technical skills. We call them hard skills, but not necessarily soft skills. So we pay a lot of attention to the everyday carry, draw stroke, right? Because it's cool. But we don't pay a lot of attention to the soft skill of situational awareness. Why? Well, because it's not as cool. I think it's cool, but a lot of people don't think it's cool. So when you tell me or you ask me and you say, Mike, if I had to do a couple things right as a male or a woman, in this case, uh, narrowing it down for a woman, uh, if you ask me, I would say you need to focus on situational awareness, even self-awareness, because that's a start point. Because if you go into the wrong gas station in the middle of the night because you're too lazy to drive to the right gas station in the middle of the night, you could be potentially a victim. And so a lot of people, uh, unbeknownst to them, are setting themselves up for failure in their own complacency and pattern of life. Simply stated, you need to pay attention, right? And if you do that, that will mitigate a lot of problems. Right? Don't go to the bar, drink a lot of alcohol, and then put yourself in a compromising situation. Um, don't go to the gas station. This is male or female, by the way. Don't go in the uh, gas station in the middle of uh, a crime-ridden area at 2 in the morning. Don't wear fancy clothes, drive a fancy car, and have fancy things hanging off your body, um, or you're likely to be a victim. That's the f- start point. I always say in this imbalance between males and females and strength, power, body composition, body mass, the pistol, specifically a handgun, probably a nine millimeter in caliber, subcompact for most women because I look at uh, concealed carry options and hand size, could mean the difference between uh, life or death, but balancing the playing field. Because if you're a 120-pound woman and you have a pistol, you have a fighting chance. If you don't, then you're rolling the dice. So let's talk about um, my recommendations for a woman and how they should go about this training path. Again, there are correlations to men, um, but I'm talking specifically for women. So one, I educate consumers of, in my business, or just who ask me, a lot of times on social media, hey, I'm such and such, this is what I want to do, I've never had a gun, this is what I need to get, or what do I need to get, and what's the process? So the first thing I'll do if I'm in person with them is I'll say, how big is your hand? And they look at me awkwardly, like, what do you mean, how big, my, how big is my hand? And I'm like, hold up your hand. And so when somebody holds up their hand to mine, I have a, a fairly large hand. So when they hold their hand to mine, I can immediately tell you what kind of model pistol they need specifically. I say nine mil because nine millimeter is now the new 45. Uh, back in the day, 45 ACP was the only caliber that anybody shot because uh, military and law enforcement were using it and they swore by it because they were in these engagements. But 9mm has advanced so much in synthetic bonded material uh, technology that have made these rounds very good at defeating human beings, not over-penetrating, not having enough cavitational wounding, and not putting down bad people who are doing bad things to good people. So also 9mm is manageable. Uh, There's two processes that happen when a gun goes boom. 
physically that happen. One is muzzle flip. So the muzzle rises or the barrel goes up. Two, the barrel goes back or the gun goes back and recoil, muzzle flip and recoil. So when you have a nine millimeter round, even a small woman can hold that gun stable with two hands and um, multiple shots, multiple engagement against the threat. And that's important. Like, I don't care that you could hold that 1911 and shoot one round. I want to see you shoot 10 rounds. Um, I want to see you shoot 10 rounds in a few seconds because your ability to control the handgun because of the size of your hand is important in alignment, which is accuracy on target, and efficiency and speed, which can be measured in, in split time. So often I'll hold my hand up and I'll look at their hand and I'll say, okay, this is what you need. There's three options. The three options are small, medium, and large. Small being subcompact, or what is called compact, a medium being subcompact, and then large being full size. So there's only two gun manufacturers that I have routinely worked with that I have confidence in giving this advice to. Now, there might be others because some people are, um, I say beholden, <laughs> you're not beholden. You recommend guns because you use these guns. Um, somebody was asking me, hey, Mike, are you going to ever make a holster for an HK? The answer is no. Why? Because I'm not familiar with HK because I'm not an end user of HK. Even though I have an HK MP5, um, a, a whole slew of HKs because I, I am a connoisseur of German engineering and good guns. So I have a collection of them, but I don't often use them for concealed carry. So if you're asking me for the recommendation, it's compact. It is a Glock 43 or a SIG 365. If you're asking me for the subcompact version, I would say the Glock 19 or the SIG 365 XL, uh, which has more purchase on the grip, or a 320X carry which I own. It's actually sitting right here in my little fly fishing bag. If you ask me what full-size gun, I would point you to a Glock 17 or a SIG 320. Um, in fact, I just ordered a Legion, so the Legion version of that. Okay, so let me break that down. So there's benefits behind a, a Glock and a SIG, but I am weighing SIG heavier for several reasons, and let me explain. My hands are big. So if you didn't look at hands and you said, hey, I want to carry a pistol, smaller does not mean better when carrying. A lot of people think that. They go, oh, I got a Derringer. I got a small pistol. Anytime you shrink the form factor of a full-size pistol to a compact, you are compromising something. So if I took a Glock 43, which I had one, I got rid of it, and I shoot that Glock 43, my hands would overwhelm that gun. So now I'm increasing the chances of um, impeding the cycle of operation or the function of the gun, uh, which means inducing a malfunction because my big hands get in the way of the slide reciprocating to the rear and it, it causes a myriad of malfunctions. The inability to hold that gun in place. Like a lot of people think if you have big hands and you have a small gun, then that gun's not moving. That's not the case. Like for me, for a Glock 43, my hands overwhelm it 
I can't control that gun because I can't get the right positioning of my hands on the pistol. Now you step it up to a Glock 19, the subcompact, and yeah, I'm going to have good purchase and that gun's not going anywhere. The reason I would weigh the SIG over the Glock in my particular case, uh, more so I'm getting um, uh, interested and more comfortable with shooting SIG, is because my support hand on the side of a pistol locks the slide catch. I think in the, uh, when I went to JSOC Armory School for Glock, the nomenclature for the slide release is actually slide catch for Glock. And so my left support hand pinches the top of the slide catch or the slide release. And then when the gun runs out of bullets, it's supposed to lock the slide to the rear over an empty magazine. But mine, because I'm pushing down on the slide catch with spring tension, doesn't lock to the rear. And then I wind up pulling the trigger on the last end of it and it goes click. And then I go, what? And then I have to do a mag change. In the same way, if I shoot and I have rounds in my gun, if my support hand gets too high, I will lock the slide catch to, in the up position and the slide will lock to the rear unintentionally. Let me say that again. I'm shooting the gun. My left hand is pinning or pushing the slide catch. And then the slide, as it reciprocates to the rear, locks into the open position when, I'm still, when I still have rounds in the gun. So rounds in the chamber, I'm sorry, rounds in the magazine, and then it hasn't chambered. It is, it's extracted and ejected because it hasn't chambered. Again, a problem. Because the immediate protocol for that, by the way, is slap rack um, bang, which means slap the bottom of the magazine, properly seating it. And when I do that, often the slide goes forward because I hit it so hard. Or I would go over, override with my left hand on the back of the slide, pull it to the rear, and let it go, and then get back on the trigger. That takes time. And the only fix for that that I've found is CAGWORKS, that's K-A-G-W-E-R-K-S, makes a modified slide catch or slide release that goes up like in an L and back. So it does that to get out of the way of your hand because God, you know, I didn't even know it was a problem, but I've met lots of guys with big hands that have this issue. So you take that and you apply it to a SIG and the issue doesn't exist. One, because the polymer around, actually, let me pull this SIG out. I have a SIG right now in my bag. I want to explain this right. So one, it's got, I think, I think the slide catch has more spring tension. But when I hold my support hand on the gun, I could get a lot more real estate with my support hand because the frame, the frame is the bottom part of the gun has more real estate for me to put my support hand than a Glock. And so I could ride forward and higher without worrying about pushing down on the ambidextrous, in this case, slide catch or slide release. So that's important for me because um, I call things that have life-saving potential no-fill products. These products can't have flaws. Um, I have a new holster that I invented because I saw flaws in the existing market. And again, you can't have flaws in pieces of equipment that you're going to use to save your life. So if you're in the middle of a gunfight 
and you shoot one round and your slide locks to the rear because your hands are too big, that's problematic. So if you're a female and you're looking at um, kind of the, the, what I'm talking about, it's not just a conclusive end-all, be-all solution. You have to look at what uh, your hand size is and what you're comfortable with shooting, to be frank. Uh, a lot of people get guns and they think it looks cool, so like this is the gun for me. Then they go to the range and it's not cool uh, because they can't control it. It's, it's too overbearing or um, the gun's too small for their hands and they don't fix it. And they go, okay, well, that's the gun for me. Like somebody asked me recently, Mike, um, what guns do you recommend for everyday carry? You got to choose one. That's not how I roll. Why? Well, we got something in America called Seasons, uh, especially in Utah, where now I'm wearing a long sleeve Patagonia shirt, which is kind of thick because the high is like in the 50s. And I'm wearing jeans. Well, if you're in, you know, if you're in California, you're in Arizona, you're wearing board shorts and a t-shirt. So I have guns for everyday carry considerations, depending on what I'm wearing, depending on what I'm doing, and depending on where I'm at. So like right now, uh, I'll explain my setup. I have a um, SIG P320X carry inside of my holster, which is magnet retained, inside of a Patagonia fly fishing bag. Why? Because it fits into my environment. I don't want this pistol inside of my waistband when I'm wearing jeans. And uh, I want to have this on, on my person, uh, even, it's, even if it's in a bag, at all times. So if you were to take me a week ago, I would have had a SIG P365, and it would have been concealed inside of my holster, inside of my pants, and you wouldn't have saw it. Um, even, though, even if I was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, you wouldn't see it because it's a smaller form factor. These are all important factors. So uh, outside of the everyday carry considerations for women, remember, there are other tactics that you could use to mitigate risk. Let me explain um, some of the tactics that I would use as a female besides a pistol. So let's say you're in your car and you have a myriad of options in the, US, uh, the United States of America. I've seen these guys who do these uh, knife fighting stuff, and I think it's important. Let me not diminish the importance of knife fighting. Uh, you should know how to use a blade. But that on my pace plan, uh, my primary alternate contingency and emergency, is the E in my pace plan. So if I'm, if I'm in a fight, or let's say I'm in a confrontation, then what's my tactics? Well, if you're a woman... Getting in a physical confrontation isn't smart, but let's say you can't avoid the confrontation. So then you have to look at what are my options. So there's fight or flee. Let's look at it like that. There's fight or flee. So if I'm fighting, what am I using to fight? Well, if you're 120 pounds against a 240 pound man, you don't have many options. So um, what I like to think of is my flee options because when you flee, it allows you to have more time to break contact, to escape and evade, to either reorganize or to just get away because I'm creating time and distance, uh, including putting obstacles between me and the potential threat. So one, I would have mace. 
I like bear mace. Um, a lot of people aren't going to carry bear mace in their purse. And I get that or on their person. But you can carry bear mace in every single door of your vehicle. Because let's say somebody is antagonizing you and they're trying to get in your vehicle. What's the options there? Is it pulling a gun? Uh, well, if you want to go to jail for the rest of your life, yeah, sure, do that. Uh, is it the knife? Are you going to stab somebody at the, as they're trying to reach into your vehicle and risk them grabbing you as you're trying to stab their hands, which is a small target? Uh, what, that's moving, by the way. Um, so what's the intent? So if I have mace, the intent is to spray the assailant to be able to drive away, right? Which gives me the opportunity to create distance. What I'm buying is time. And that's the most important factor. What I'm buying is time. So I will hit them in the face. I mean, me physically at being how big I am, I generate a lot of power. But if you're a woman, you're making up for the lack of power with tactics. And this, clue, and this includes mace. So uh, a lot of people have mace, but they don't know what to do when they spray somebody with mace. Like, do, I, do I spray you and then do I fight you? Do I spray you and I hang out? No. The point is to create distance and to break contact from the threat. That's what I'm doing. Another option is a taser. Look, uh, I've been tased before. It's not fun. Um, and it, it can be debilitating. But I've also seen officer-involved um, videos that have had people under the influence of drugs, of um, um, mental issues, the list goes on, that have fought through that. Even, even the mace thing have fought through that. So that's why I have contingencies. Let's say I spray a guy in the face with bear mace and he's still fighting to get to me, and I move to another contingency and say it's a taser, and that doesn't work. Well, then I've at least had a set rules, set rules of uh, engagement in my escalation of force. Now, I'm not telling you to um, draw your mace can when a dude pulls out a gun to rob you. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is not every single scenario in self-defense, one, it's never clear. Two, there's many variables, but not every single one of them is going to warrant deadly force. So we, you have to be prepared to, to escalate the uh, appropriate level of force to combat the threat um, and be able to do that in, in a millisecond, uh, rapidly. So I would carry mace. I would carry um, pepper spray, even bear mace. I would carry a handheld uh, where you apply it in short duration um, with, a, with a button taser. I wouldn't use the projectiles um, because that's too much and also can be confused with a gun. And then I would have my everyday carry set up. Now, if you're a woman, the carrying considerations are um, less than a man. Unless you're a woman who wears jeans, um, who physically can carry without printing, which is uncommon, by the way, in females. So, um, look, there's better tactics, right? There's, there's more people inventing better ways, everything from specific types of yoga pants and um, specific types of bands that go around your belly that streamline the pistol and its position. But that makes it more difficult to access. 
So a lot of people have said to me, Mike, what would you recommend for a woman to carry inside of her purse? And I said, well, one, convenience. Look, if you're a woman and you take a, your everyday carry pistol and you put it in your purse, you're likely to carry it. So if you have to assess whether or not your outfit is going to allow you to carry a pistol, you're likely to not carry it. So I would prefer in this instance that you would carry a pistol in your purse. And here's a little bit of the complication. So if you have a pistol and you're carrying it in your purse, it's likely in a holster. Let's say you're carrying a pistol in your purse in a holster and it has a metal clip. There's likely not to be a setup to be able to keep that holster retained. So when you pull the gun out of your purse, it's just pulling the gun, not the holster. The holster is going to come with it. So what I've done is I have um, looked at several setups because I used to carry pistols and guns in different scenarios in government contracting and special operations where you can have a lanyard or 550 cord attached to um, your holster. So when you grab the gun out of the bag or out of the purse, when you pull it, the holster stays in place. I like that option. Now for me, for uh, my pistol setup, which is magnet retained, I'm going to have a setup to allow you to retain the pistol in a bag or a purse. But then when you pull the pistol, there's a compartment to allow the holster to be retained in the bag. So when you draw it, you'll just have a pistol in your hand. Um, that's a consideration. Um, another consideration is putting the pistol in the purse in a slot or compartment without one in the chamber. Now, again, I, I say that out loud and it feels wrong saying, because I don't want you to do that. But again, I would rather you have a pistol and carrying it because uh, a lot of self-defense scenarios have to do with other people in your proximity. Um, like a domestic, right? You're in a restaurant, a domestic uh, dispute starts, and then one guy pulls out a gun or one gal pulls out a gun, and then and it doesn't involve you. So you have the luxury of a little bit of time. So it's not always an immediate threat where you're drawing your pistol to save your life. So if I was weighing that and you're uncomfortable with putting a pistol inside of your bag with a holster period because you didn't have the setup, I would rather you hold a pistol in your purse without one in the chamber, understanding when you pull that out, you have to rack the slide. Now, the reason I don't recommend that is because it's been shown in plenty of studies of, um, of shootings that under stress, the things that you technically do without stress, you're not likely to do with stress. So it, it, when you're honed in and you're narrowly focused on a threat that's going to take your life, you're not thinking about that uh, round that's not in the chamber. You're thinking about that threat. Um, you're in a sympathetic nervous response and you're trying to fight for your life. So I would recommend navigating a belly band or a system that you can integrate into your waistline that is separate from your outfit that you can carry every single day. And then the integration of your pistol in your purse with the proper setup. Now, if, if it was me, I don't carry a purse. Um, but if I carried a purse, I would be looking to modify that purse or use a company that has the modifications done to have a better concealed carry setup. I like 
Like one, it's irresponsible not to carry. If you're a law-abiding citizen in this country, you should be caring. You're not just caring. You're not just caring for yourself, for your family, for your friends. But I look at it as a responsible citizen that you should be caring for everybody in your community. Um, when I look at Heber City, where I live in Utah, I look at everybody in this town as family. Um, so somebody's broken down, I'm helping them. Uh, somebody's in a vehicle accident, I'm stopping to assist. Somebody needs help, I'm doing my best to help because this is my community. Uh, we need to get back to community ideas about culture. Often, if you look at all of the different areas that we live in in pockets of population across the United States, a lot of the disaffected issues that we're dealing with, with poverty, with homelessness, um, the list goes on, right, is because of the lack of community. Um, and, and that breaks my heart, but there's a way to integrate, it, integrate that. Um, I want to spend the rest of this podcast talking about my training plan. Um, look, I am a businessman, but more importantly than my business and the profits that we gain, I am immersed in the idea of creating purpose and giving back to my community. It's what I want to do for the rest of my life in a selfless way of giving back. That's the same mentality I had in active duty service to my country. And it's the same ideology that I have transitioned into civilian life, bringing to bear with my company, Philcraft Survival, and also the way that we do business. So um, if you haven't heard, Raul Martinez, who's my training director, has started his own company called Rogue Methods. And he is going to focus on that company. Um, I've brought in another training director named Sean Kirkwood, a former A15. It's a specialized unit in special operations, a Silver Star recipient, like a great dude that you could listen to his podcast with Kevin Owens on the Philcraft Survival Podcast to be the training director for all of Philcraft. Um, Raul's not going away, he's just focused on his company for combatives and realistic training. And we will actually be offering and partnering with Raul so you guys can get that because that's not in our wheelhouse. So evolving our training is a few things. One, this year as we trained, I didn't like the fact that specifically if you lived in an area and you wanted to train with Philcraft, you could take a pistol course in Arizona, but then to take survival you needed to fly to Connecticut. Or if you took a survival course in Connecticut and you want to take a tactical course, you had to fly to Florida. That doesn't make sense to me. The start point for this is building regional relationships with ranges. There's only a few ranges. I say a few. It's actually a lot more than a few. But there's many ranges that we have adopted as partners that get it. Secure American if I'm saying that wrong, I apologize. It's the guys at Paraclete Consulting Group that's outside of San Antonio, Texas. I know I'm going to forget somebody here and I apologize. Route 66 in San Bernardino, outside of San Bernardino. The list goes on, right? These ranges get it. One, they allow citizens to train. They allow them to do realistic training. They're not 
uh, RSO Nazis, range safety officer Nazis, where they're looking at every little facet that they can ding you on. They want to have the relationship with Phil Craft and bridge community relationships. So the idea leaning into 2022 is that if you have training in your backyard, then you can get the collective and build out your levels of preparedness through the curriculum in the same place throughout the year. So you'll get the pistol. You'll get the carbine. You'll get the self-defense pistol, the self-defense carbine. You'll get the stop the bleed, the mobility, the land navigation, the home defense, all of the curriculum in one location in your region. Now, I can't promise I'll have one in every state, but I'm looking at a dozen or more places in the U.S. where you can go and get the instruction uh, from the directors of training that are in your own backyard. So if you're in Colorado, for example, you could train with one of our guys, Matt Vandy, who's a former Denver SWAT guy, Metro, Metro SWAT guy, that you could take pistol, carbine, stop the bleed, survival, mobility, and do all those courses throughout the year without leaving the state. Uh, and if you're not in that state, you won't have to travel far, which, which is my promise to you guys in building this out. Now, we, we already offered up because we're, we're opening positions for training. Um, if you're interested in that, you have to have a background. I mean, I love the motivation of some guys, but if you don't have a background, then it's going to be very difficult for us to um, put you in the right place. And also, look, I'm not most interested in technical backgrounds. Uh, fancy resumes don't impress me. It's the resumes of technical aptitude and uh a competency mixed with experience. That's what I like because not always the best technical practitioners, they're not always the greatest instructors. We want structure instructors first and foremost. Also, Mike Hernandez has gotten guidance to start looking at teaching uh, mobility across the country. So as an offering, we will offer the mobility experience, which is a two and a half day experience of overlanding and learning as well as Mobility 101 and Coffee and Go Rigs. That's just an offering that we're bringing in 2022 um, because we want you to get the full gambit. I talked to Amber, and Amber's outlining the plan for family preparedness, which includes youth programs, which includes all women courses, um, and I'm super excited about the future. So a little bit about my ideology for how this progresses. Every Black Rifle Coffee that is in your backyard will have a retail section of Philcraft Survival. So every coffee shop, yeah, it's, it's like coffee, right? But we have a partnership with Black Rifle to bring you in retail equipment and swag from Philcraft Survival so we can start preparing our communities. What you'll see from me is going out to all the Black Rifle coffees across the nation. Right now, we're looking at um, almost 15 by the end of the year where we can get in your backyard, we could talk to you about survival and get you introduced to this concept of being better prepared. You go on to our LMS, which is our learning management. A lot of the courses that we kickstart you with are free. And then you take it as far as you want to go. You want to do online learning. You want to get the equipment with a QR code to teach you how to use the equipment. And then we segment you into, hey, this is your, this is your regional area for training. That's the goal, a progressive scale and planning out your levels of preparedness. That's progressive. That makes sense. Um, I, you know, 
and this is a business development issue and also a, um, a capacity issue. Uh, I don't have the, I didn't have the bandwidth to be able to do something like this. It's always what I wanted, but tactical pistol carby made the money. So I had to focus on my strengths, um, make that money to build the capital revenue to be able to influx. Like our holsters, the one I'm holding right now, this holster is a magnet retention holster that I improved upon. It will be available in Sportsman's Warehouse. Hopefully Cabela's and Bass Pro, we'll see. But that will be in the store with the QR code on how to use it. That's super important. A lot of, a lot of companies put out kit and inversely put out training without the complement of each other. To me, they go hand in hand. So if you get the, uh, if you pick up the holster, you're going to get a block of instruction on me teaching you how to interact with it and optimize your capability. And that's all that is. So excited about the future for training. Uh, everything from Raul's uh, rogue methods with combatives to the full spectrum of preparedness training that we offer at Fieldcraft, including physical fitness. Uh, physical fitness has always been a staple of my life, um, but I'm not that kind of guy. I've never been, I've always been a functionally fit kind of guy. Um, never been like a, you know, lifting, you know, two muscle groups a day kind of guy because I'm a big guy. If I just lift weights, I'll get real big and then I'll feel like crap all the time. I like functional fitness. So getting ready for this hunt that I did recently it was ready for a hunt in Idaho. I was doing a lot of rucking, a lot of walking, a lot of hiking, and then was, was prepared. I say prepared. I wasn't fully prepared because it kicked my ass, um, but I was pre prepared. <laughs> like I was stuttered there because I'm lying. Um, I wasn't prepared as I needed to be. You could never be in the back sawtooth mountains of uh, Idaho. But functional fitness is coming as well because I want to host seminars. I want to do soft prep courses on teaching young men and women how to be physically and mentally prepared for the stressors of life and of combat, uh, whether it's going to selection or ranger school or just working your job uh, in corporate America. I want you to be better prepared and more resilient, and that's what that's about. So yeah, I'm excited about that. I know somebody wanted me to talk. Uh, I got a question about uh, gun policies and things that are happening in our country when it comes to gun policies. What I would say is that, um, look, politically, there's a lot of things happening. Uh, I see it. I feel it. I live it, actually. I had told you guys this on the last podcast. I've been trying to get an Afghan partner of mine out of Afghanistan for about the last month now. Um, thanks to organizations like Deliver Fund, if you want to donate, there's three organizations I recommend because I see the impact they have. It's deliverfund.org that focuses, focuses on sex trafficking and human trafficking, specifically of women and young girls. Saveourallies.org, which is ran by a good friend of mine, Chad Robichaud, uh, Nick and Tim. I'm actually on their board, their advisory board which does uh, a lot for the disaffected allies that we have worked with in foreign countries. Um, most recently focused on Afghanistan, 
and they extracted over 9,000 civilians out of, out of Afghanistan. And then the last one is, um, well, there's, there's actually two more. The Mighty Oaks program is a veteran-based program uh, that focuses on veterans that are dealing with PTS uh, issues. And it's a very comprehensive program as well as Warrior's Heart Foundation. Look, I, I'm big about supporting organizations. That we need to do that because privately, that's how we're going to get it done. If we're leaning on the government, at least for the next few years, it doesn't look, based on what I've seen with Afghanistan it's, and its complete debacle, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to lean on them for anything. I've, taught, I've contacted congressmen, uh, representative, representatives in my own backyard, uh, senators, governors, and mayors, and nobody can give me answers on anything. And I'm directly being affected by it. I mean, I've deployed multiple times to Afghanistan. I have friends that I've worked with who have the resumes to be on the special immigration visa list, and they're not. And the detriment is nobody's doing anything about it because nothing's in place. So there's not a diplomatic effort. There's not, if it is, it's not advertised because they're not getting help through immigration. They're, the Taliban have full control of the country and the Afghan allies like I have are hiding in the dark. So th this idea that we need government, um, there's, a, there's a big breakdown in our society of two sides of this. Half the country probably thinking, that they need the government and half the country knowing they don't need the government. Coming from somebody who's worked for the government for decades, I will tell you the government doesn't do anything very well. Uh, that's why I love private industry. That's why I'm a capitalist. Uh, that's why I love free enterprise and free markets, international business and the ability, the ability uh, within your limitations of law and order, which are very broad, just follow law and order. And in America, you could be anything you want to be. That's the advantage of the American experiment and dream. And I think we've forgotten that because the more leverage the government has and its control, the less freedom and opportunity we have. And that's becoming very apparent in many major metropolitan areas that are populated. So if you live in, um, oh man, there's so many of them. I, I won't even start naming them. Just think about your own capital and its major metropolitan area. What are the characteristics of that place? Well, I could tell you right now, because I look at the statistics, increase in homelessness, increase of crime, increase of uh, high school dropouts, um, increase of government welfare, um, increase of subsidies, and a dependence on a system that is critical in the survival of these people's lives. So why would you vote for another way of living when you're getting everything you need that's incentivizing you for not working versus living that dream, living that opportunity, and doing something great for yourself? So what's going to continue to happen is all of these states with the influx of 
uh, these social welfare, welfare programs, which uh, obviously is putting us in debt, um, making us less independent and more dependent on China, on uh, other people besides us, um, is going to come to a screeching halt and a catastrophe. Now, even if it's a natural catastrophe, it's often likely to shape itself into a man-made catastrophe. People have asked me my opinions on war, civil war specifically. I don't think that's an option here. Uh, meaning, I don't think it's one. I don't think it's uh, likely. I would never advocate for that because what are you talking about? So, what are you going to do? Go to war with the IRS? Uh, you're going to go to war with politicians? It makes no sense. Number one, uh, it's not like the political wing of the executive branch of the U.S. government or even Congress or the Senate are action arms. <laughs> so you're not fighting politicians. Um, and the federal government and, and all of its uh, bureaucracy and, and bloatedness doesn't have the capability of doing that in the first place. Well, it, it, then it will be citizen against a citizen. Well, how does that work? It's not even fathomable because the benefit of the United States of America is the balance of powers and decentralizing power away from the central government. So yeah, there's a lot of strife, a lot of anxiety, but what you'll see is the states starting to break apart from the control of the central government, which I think is not bad as an idea. Um, you know, I'm not saying that I want to operate in the U.S. trying to navigate and cross borders. Yeah, I just don't think it's likely, but it's okay. I mean, people have varying opinions and you know, you're entitled to your opinion. Uh, what I do recommend and if we're talking about preparedness and the best likelihood of your sustainable survival over time is I, I track supply chains. It's part of my business. We are likely to see unprecedented supply logistical issues, uh, specifically with China, that are going to affect everything this country does in the future. So, uh, for example, I went to Overland Expo. Every single industry has been affected by this. I have business meetings every single day with large companies and every one of their businesses has been affected. So what's the future? Well, if you haven't stockpiled um, and prepared for the worst case scenario and even logistical supplies, which you might not think is a big deal, but look at your own habits. So if you get up every single week and you go to the grocery store and you fill your fridge with groceries from the store, with products from Walmart, and that's how you sustain this level of comfort in your own house, then what does that look like when it's not there anymore? When Chinese New Year reduces all of the capacity and capability of all the logistical support, which they control the ports in the US, specifically in the outside of LA, and now you can't get the goods that you're typically used to having that has resounding uh, second and third order effects for fuel, for, for all fossil fuels um, and renewable energy because it affects products, raw material specifically out of India and China. I mean, everything you have, even if it's made in the U.S., the raw material didn't come from here. We're not, we're not mining plastic. Um, we're not mining fossil fuels or, or, or specific types of material that we're using in products here in America. Uh, it's just not a thing. So we're dependent on an international 
world stage and system. If you haven't realized it yet, if you've paid attention to the news, we're not doing really well when it comes to foreign policy. We've lost the faith and the trust of allies and partners, specifically because of Afghanistan and other reasons. And COVID-19 is causing all of this strife. I mean, if you look at CNN, uh, which is the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party, um, and I'm not, again, this political because uh, Fox News is the <laughs> propaganda arm of the Republican Party. We are in a very divisive ideological war against each other. Um, I'm a member of the independent party. Now, let's call it the centrist balanced party, uh, the CB party, uh, centrist and balanced. I'm an American who believes that you should be able to live your own life and make your own decisions in your own backyard. As long as you're not hurting anybody, breaking laws, uh, which we've seen how that rolls uh, and specifically in democratically uh, held countries across the U.S. I mean, if you're in BLM or Antifa, you could break any law you want. Anything outside of that and there'll be a federal investigation and you'll be, be labeled a domestic terrorist. So I'm not on this train of combating this effort uh, besides my vote. But I'm on this train of self-reliance. Like I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty balanced person. I could be radical in some aspects that are socially tied to my life and my behavior. But I, I live a very balanced understanding of how life works because of this world perspective that I have. So focus on yourself, focus on your family, and focus on getting your family disconnected from this umbilical cord that is the central government, even the government in your own backyard. Stop being so dependent. If you haven't got out of debt, if you haven't started at looking at reducing debt and reallocating resources to help enable your survival, you're wrong. And I don't want you surviving. I want you thriving. I don't want you to be a prepper. I want you to be prepped. And I hope that makes sense. Guys, um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I want to say thank you to uh, all my partners, my friends, my family, um, and all of you. If you didn't support me, my endeavors at Phil Kraus Survival, my company, my personal Instagram, and the things that I do uh, to bring value to your life, which I think is the reciprocation effort uh, of me trying to provide value for you, I wouldn't be in this position. I'd still probably be a government contractor for the agency complaining about all the crap that's going on. But instead, I'm living a dream. I'm becoming more uh, self-reliant by the day. And I hope you're doing the same. Till next time. Peace.